Uh, excited to get to study God's Word with you together. My name is Bran. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Glad that you would join us this Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, I hope, I trust that your time here this morning will be good for your heart. And, and like I said before, we'd, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. So, uh, like Andy said, we are walking our way through the book of Nehemiah in our time together on Sunday mornings. And we're going to continue our way through Nehemiah. And, but if you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you've just been gone, uh, let me just catch you up briefly on where we're at in Nehemiah, and we'll dive into our study this morning together. So Nehemiah, like every other book in the Bible, is, is really not a story about Nehemiah or whoever else wrote whatever various book it is. They're all really stories about God. They reveal to us something about who he is and what, it's, what he is like and what it looks like for us to be his people and to follow him. And, and the story that we find about God in Nehemiah is all about showing us how God is a God who is sovereign and faithful to keep his promises. That's the theme that kind of runs throughout the whole story of the book. And what we see happening throughout that book is, is God's using Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of promises that he has made to his people to forgive and redeem and, and to once again gather them and to cause them to be a community of people who will live for his glory as they were always meant to do. And we saw in the first uh, half of the story in Nehemiah how that begins with, with this Jewish exile named Nehemiah. We meet him, he's serving as the cupbearer to the king of Persia when we meet him at the beginning of the story. And what happens is he, he gets a report about the sad state of Jerusalem. And uh, God's people there, he hears, are in great trouble and disgrace because the walls of God's city remain after 140 years they remained broken down and destroyed. And all this obviously wasn't new information to Nehemiah. What happens is God causes it to hit him in a new way. And he causes him to care about that reality with God's perspective and to see it as God sees it and to care about it as he does. And, and so he, because Nehemiah loves God's name and loves God's people and because he sees the destruction of the city of Jerusalem as ultimately a message of shame and disgrace about God and his name, he knows he has to do something about it. And so after months of praying and planning, he goes to the king and not only asks him for an incredible vacation and time off of work, but also that this foreign pagan king would actually fund and personally endorse the rebuilding efforts in Nehemiah's hometown. Despite the fact, not to mention that this very king had expressly put the kibosh on any and all rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem just a few years back. And miraculously, the king says yes, because as we've seen over and over again, what Nehemiah is doing in the, in the book is not really his plan, it's God's. God's the one behind all of it. And so uh, with the clear support not only of the king, but more importantly of God, Nehemiah heads to Jerusalem. He rallies the people there to rebuild the walls and to remove the shame and disgrace that their destruction was bringing on them and on God. And in spite of all kinds of opposition and threats from every imaginable kind of scenario and situation, uh, Nehemiah and God's people, that's exactly what they do. They rebuild the wall. We read in the end of chapter 6 how after, amazingly, after just 52 short days, the walls and gates of Jerusalem, which had lain broken down and destroyed for 140 plus years, have been rebuilt. And you would think that that would be the climax of the story, that that would be the point in the story where everybody breaks out the balloons and streamers, right, where they're, like, there's a great celebration, but it's not. 
It's not. It's just a, a point in the story, and they keep moving on because the reality is that Nehemiah's goal from the very beginning was never really just about rebuilding the walls of God's city. It was always ultimately about rebuilding the very community of God's people there because it wasn't just the state of Jerusalem's walls that God intended to proclaim his glory and goodness to the world. It was the attitudes and the actions of the people that lived within the walls. That was always meant to be a message about his glory and his goodness. And so rebuilding the people of God into a community whose lives, whose words, whose attitudes, whose actions reflect and reveal and proclaim God's goodness and glory, that's, that's the heart of what the second half of Nehemiah is, is all about. And we saw last week when we gathered, two weeks ago rather, that, that second half, uh, that rebuilding work uh, began in Nehemiah's day as a rebuilding of God's people always does with the reprioritizing and the reestablishing of the word of God as the right, good, and highest authority in our lives. We saw chapter 7, how as the people are moving back into the city after they're finally refortified this city, they're moving back in. And what we find is in the midst of all this great chaos, in the midst of everyone moving back into this city that has sat abandoned for 140 plus years, is that they decide that their highest priority, the thing that's most important that they should be doing, is to gather together and to learn the Bible and to worship God. And so they ask Ezra, their priest, their pastor, to read and teach God's word to them. And like any good pastor, he doesn't have to get asked twice. He carpe diems that moment, and he preaches a six-hour sermon, right? Which is what I will be doing this morning as well. I will. Okay, thank you, Dustin. Appreciate it. Anyways, what happens is that the people aren't dismayed, right, that there's a six-hour sermon. What happens is that you see that they're, they're totally engaged with what's going on. What happens is that as the people hear God's word being read and explained to them, they begin to weep. We talked about last week what's happening is that they're experiencing godly sorrow. They're realizing all the ways that their attitudes and their actions are out of line with God's word and with his will. And they're being, they're being convicted of their sin and their rebellion against God. And, and they're rightly sensing the magnitude of that reality. But what we saw is that their godly sorrow it doesn't lead them to just mere sadness. It doesn't lead them or just to just plain regret. We got a glimpse at the end of chapter 8 last week how it was actually leading them to a life-giving genuine repentance. And it was characterized by an obedience and a turning from sin. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that God's gracious conviction is always meant to produce in us. And so repentance, uh, a turning from sin and a turning towards obedience in, with God. Repentance is what chapters 9 and 10 of Nehemiah are all about. We're going to be in those two chapters this week and next week. It's kind of a part one and part two, really. Chapter 9 and 10. And repentance is really the theme of these two chapters. And what we're going to see this morning in chapter 9 is that, is that true repentance, it always begins with confession. True repentance always begins with confession. Nobody, zero, like actually zero amount of people like talking about their sin. Nobody likes talking about their sin. We want to hide it. We want to shift the blame. We want to explain it away. We want to redefine it or somehow manage it. But we absolutely do not want to confess it. We absolutely do not want to own it. We do not want to admit it. What I want to show you this morning as we look at God's people's repentant confession of their own sin as the, this first part of repentance, what I want to show you is that, that seeing and remembering God's track record of relentless faithfulness and mercy in spite of our sin, 
It's actually the very thing that empowers us to be a people who will confess our sin to him. Uh, Not full of fear of punishment or retribution, but instead of people who are able to confess their sin with a hopeful confidence that we might receive grace and forgiveness that actually empowers us to live new lives. It's only when you see God's track record, when you see his proven history of relentless forgiveness and graciousness, you'll actually be empowered to be able to be one who's able to confess your sin and receive his grace. So with that in mind, let me pray. We'll dive into Nehemiah chapter 9. Buckle up. There's a lot of verses this morning, and uh, we'll go from there, okay? Jesus, thanks so much for our time in your word, and we're so grateful that we get to gather together this morning to worship you and to read from your word and to understand it. And, and God, we're, we just ask, as we do every week, as we come before you in your word, we just humbly say that we, without your spirit empowering our time together, without you enabling me to preach not just what's right and true, but with power, without you enabling us to hear and respond rightly to your word, uh, our time is a waste. And so we ask God humbly, would you accomplish in us the work you set out for your word to do? And would you make us humble and teachable? Would you enable us to be shaped and formed by your word and so that we might be a people who love you more and who reflect your nature and character into our world? And so we need you for every part of that this morning. We ask that you would meet us in, your, in our need for you and we just come hopefully expectantly knowing that you love to do it. So we ask that you would for our good and for your glory, God, we pray. Amen. All right, well, Nehemiah chapter 9, we're verses 1 through 37. It's a long one this morning, so buckle up. We'll make it through, I promise, okay? Begins this way. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. And those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their places, and they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of their Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Yeshua, Bani, Kadmael, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua and Cadmiel and Bani and Hashabaniah and Sherebiah and Hodiah and Shebaniah and Petahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessings and praise, for you alone are Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all the starry host, and the earth, and all that's on it, the seas, and all that's in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven, they worship you. And you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. And you found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and Girgashites. And you have kept your promise because you are righteous. And you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. 
And you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and you sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all of his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. And you made a name for yourself, which remains to this day, and you divided the seas before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters." By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way that they were to take. And you came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. In their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land that you had sworn with uplifted hands to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember all the miracles you had performed among them. And they became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. And because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor did the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. And for 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. And you made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky. And you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. And their children went in and took possession of the land. And you subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. And you gave them the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olives, groves, fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets, who you had warned them in order to turn back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. And so you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. And then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinance, which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. 
Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, and so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, wrapping it up, our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the king of Assyria until today, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. And our kings and our leaders and our priests and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today in the land that you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces because of our sins. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us and they rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please and we are in great distress. Now, you probably won't be surprised after listening to me read all of those verses to find out that this is actually the longest prayer that's recorded for us in the whole Bible, the longest one. Nehemiah is, it's basically, chapter 9 here is basically a summary of the whole Old Testament. I've mentioned before, even though the book of Nehemiah, if you look at it in your Bibles, it's kind of in the middle of your Old Testament, it's actually chronologically at the very, very end. Chronologically, the events we see happening in Nehemiah are the last thing before we get to the New Testament that chronologically happens in the story of Scripture. And what you have in this, in this prayer is, is uh, basically God's people summarizing their own story in the whole Old Testament, tracing the story of God's people beginning with God's covenant in Abraham and including their captivity in and exodus from, from Egypt and the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that followed that, their eventual entrance into the promised land, the cycle of rebellion and deliverance during the time of the judges and the kings and all the way up to their eventual defeat and exile at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians, which has led them to the very situation they find themselves in today. And so their prayer is really a summary of their whole story throughout the whole Old Testament. And what's so striking as you see the way that God's people recount their own story in this prayer is that it is not a version of the story that makes them look good. It's not a version that, that makes them look real good. Most of the time, usually when people are telling their story, right, usually tell your own story in a way that makes you look good, right? That makes you look impressive or heroic or victorious or at least not like absolute rebellious fools, right? And yet that's, you don't find any of that here. In fact, you find the opposite. Throughout their prayer, God's people are admitting how they are repeatedly been characterized by being stubborn and hard-hearted and unfaithful and disobedient and outright rebellious. 
At the heart of this long prayer isn't an attitude of self-congratulation. It's an attitude of humble and repentant confession. Like I said before, the, the kind of true repentance that godly sorrow always produces, it always starts with confession. And while it should be obvious that we do not have time to suck the marrow out of all 37 verses we read this morning, what I want to do as we study this, these, this prayer this morning is I want to highlight a couple of really important things that we learn about the kind of confession that is characterized by true repentance. What kind of a confession is true repentance characterized by? And the first thing that I want, to sh- that I want you to see is that, is that a true repentant confession, it begins with an accurate view of God. Begins with an accurate view of God. The emphasis throughout the whole prayer is on remembering and praising God for who he is and what he has done more than 50 times. The word you or your is used in reference to God's character or his actions. He is mentioned on average like two times per verse. He, in a lot of ways, is the very focus of this whole prayer. The prayer begins in verses 5 and 6 by highlighting how God is the one true only sovereign king and creator of everyone and everything. And therefore, he is the one that is only worthy of being worshipped. No one else. The prayer goes on repeatedly emphasizing how this God is not just the sovereign creator and ruler of everything, but that he's faithful and that he's good. Verse 8, he is righteous and keeps his promises. Verse 9, he sees and hears the cries of his people. Verse 11, he rescues them from their enemies. Verse 15, he provides for them. Verse 13, he gives them laws and commands that are just and good. Verse 17, he is forgiving, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He doesn't desert. He doesn't abandon. Verse 21, he sustains and provides for his people in the wilderness. Verse 23, he gave land and children and all kinds of good things. Verse 28, time and time again, he delivers his people from their enemies. Verse 30 and 31, he is patient, merciful, gracious. The list goes on, on and on and on it goes. See, the reality is is that you and I, we like to compare ourselves to other people because the truth is, is when you compare yourself to somebody else, you have a whole lot less that you need to confess, right? It's just true. Because we are all together a lot better. We're, we're, a lot, we're a lot more similar to people. We think, you know, well, we're not as bad as them, right? Or we think, well, at least I didn't do X, Y, or Z, right? The, the reality is, is that the confession is not about admitting the ways you do or do not measure up to other people. Confession is ultimately about admitting the ways that we don't measure up to God and to his standards. So true confession begins by having an accurate view of God and by comparing ourselves not to others, but to him. What happens is is because it's only when you have an accurate view of God that you can actually get an accurate view of yourself and your own sin in such stark contrast to God's unwavering faithfulness, his relentless goodness, his righteousness, his gracious generosity, the abject wickedness of God's people. It like just comes to the surface so much more clearly. Verse 16 and 17, they say, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant, stiff-necked. They 
didn't obey your commands. They refused to listen. They failed to remember. They became stiff-necked and in rebellion, appointed a leader to return to their slavery. Verse 26, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets. Verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, again, they did what was evil in your sight. Verse 29, stubbornly, they turned their backs on you. They became stiff-necked, refused to listen. Ouch! Right? Look, that is, that is harsh. They are holding no punches. They are pulling no punches. So important that you see here, as they confess their sin, they own it. They own all of it. They don't rationalize it. They don't explain it away. They don't excuse it. They don't try to shift the blame. They don't try to minimize it. They own it, all of it. They understand that the situation that they are in, the hardship that they face as, as God's people living in God's land but ruled by other people and all the hardship that they are facing is a direct result of their own sin and rebellion. It's not God's fault. It's their fault that any of the good things that God has given them they do not deserve and everything that is hard that he has allowed, they are owed and so much more. Verse 33, I think, sums it all up. They say it this way, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You've acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. You see, they get it. They see God for who he is, faithful, good, unchanging, righteous, true. And they see themselves for who they really are. And what's happening in their prayer of confession is what they're doing is they are agreeing with God. They are agreeing with God about who he is and who they are. You see, and that's really what confession really ultimately is. Confession is ultimately us agreeing with God about what is true. Agreeing with God about what is true about him and also what's true about us, that he is right and that we are wrong, that his ways are good and right and just and true and that ours are not. Ultimately, that he is God and that we aren't. And instead of letting him be God, we try to be. See, what's so important that you see, church, is is that true repentance is marked by confession, not just of wrong behavior, but of a heart that stands opposed to God and his good and right authority in our lives. Confession is not just about admitting to God our wrong behavior. It's about owning before him our hearts that are rebelliously wicked against him our hearts that have rejected his good authority. Did you notice how in their prayer of confession, it wasn't just a list of all their wrong behavior. They obviously include some of that, but what you see repeated, what's underneath all of that, is you see them repeating this language about how they were self-sufficient and stiff-necked and obstinate and arrogant and rebellious. That they had hearts that were hard towards God. That's because sin is not merely bad behavior. Sin is fundamentally a mutinous rebellion. See, we want to be the ones that decide what is true and right and good. And we want to be the ones that are in charge. And we want to be the ones that have the final say and the final authority. The reality is that all sin is rooted out of the fact that we want to be God. And so we reject God's good authority and we enthrone ourselves as God. And our spiritual mutiny leads to all kinds of wrong behavior. 
All kinds of wrong behavior that's out of line with God's word and his ways. But those are all symptoms of the greater problem that, that we have committed a mutinous rebellion against the one true king and creator. And so our bad behavior is not what we need to confess most. It is our rebellious and self-sufficient hearts that have got us there in the first place. And so confession is about admitting and owning the depths of our rebellious hearts, agreeing with God about the reality that he's God, that we're not, but that we've chosen to live as though we are. What you see in this prayer of confession is that these people, they get it. They get it. And so confession, it begins with this accurate view of God that leads us to an accurate view of ourselves. And it's fundamentally about agreeing with God about what's true about him and us and how he acts and how we have acted. And admitting that instead of worshiping him, we worship something else. And if it's all well and good to know that, but I think we can all be honest, who wants to do any of that? Who wants to do any of that? Who wants to agree with God about who he is and about who we are? Nobody likes talking about their sin. Nobody likes admitting it. Nobody likes confessing it, whether it's out of fear of consequences or punishment or just the loss of approval or control or whatever it might be. And so the, the question that you have to ask is, what motivates these people to be so brutally honest before God and one another? What, what made them think that confessing their sin and, and owning all the ways that they had repeatedly failed and rebelled against God, what makes them think that that is actually a good idea? That they should do it. The list is painful to watch. There's one thing. There's one thing that changes it for them. It's God's proven record of relentless faithfulness and mercy in spite of their sin. That's what changes it for them. You see, there from prayer of confession, it ends not with a fear of punishment of, all right, God, we've been honest with you. Now do with us as you see fit. No, it ends with this hopeful cry for mercy because in reminding themselves about who God was and all he had done, they had not only seen their own sin and rebellion so wildly clearly, they had also seen his abundant grace and mercy. One commentator puts it this way. He says, when we see God as he truly is, not only do we become aware of our own sinfulness, we become aware of God's willingness to save and forgive. Over and over and over throughout their prayer, in response to all their sin and the rebellion, God is patient. He is faithful. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't reject them, even at their worst. Instead, he shows them grace and mercy. He rescues them again and again and again and again. And I need you to see this. He does not do it because they deserve it. And he doesn't even do it because they asked him. He does it because that's who he is. That is his very nature and character. Verse 17, you are a forgiving God. You are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you didn't desert them. They're saying, God, because this is true about who you are, that's the reason why you didn't desert your people. We deserve for you to leave us. But because you are faithful and righteous and good, you didn't. Verse 31, it's in your great mercy that you did not put an end to them. 
or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. What they're saying is not because of us, God, but because you are gracious, because you are merciful, you forgave us. And time after time after time, you came running after us to redeem and renew. You see, seeing and remembering God's track record of relentless faithfulness and mercy in spite of their own sin, that's what actually enabled them to confess their sin to God, to be honest with him about it. Instead of fearing punishment, but instead they come with him this hopeful confidence that what they'll actually get as they confess their sin is grace and mercy in response that actually empowers a new life lived up to him. And that's what you see happening in their story. In verse 26 through 31, we see this repeating pattern of rebellion and deliverance that characterized the time of the judges and the time of the kings. And they recount, three times how they were disobedient so God handed them over to their enemies and in the first two cases God's people cry out for help and he delivers them but the last cycle it's not completed if you notice in their prayer the last cycle in that story they don't recount because the truth is they are in the very middle of that last cycle and God has handed them over to their enemies because of their sin and rebellion and their prayer here it's the very cry for help that you see in the cycle all those other times. It's a cry for mercy that God would again show favor to his people even though they don't deserve it. And what you see is that their cry for mercy is full of hope, is it not? It's full of hope because they know that if they will repentantly cry out to God for help, that he will answer them. Verse 32, they pray, they say, Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, hear this, who keeps his covenant of love. Who keeps his covenant of love. They say, don't let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, God. For we are really in great distress. Church, the reason why they come to God and admit their sin and rebellion with a hope and with a cry for mercy instead of a fear of retribution is because God has proven over and over and over again that he has more grace in him than they have sin in them. He has more grace in him than they have sin in them. And where their sin abounds... His grace overflows all the more. That's what their whole story is. Read it again. God, you are this, but we. But you instead came. And you rescued a wicked and rebellious people over and over and over again. You see, the fullest picture, the ultimate proof of who God is and all that he claims to be is found in the cross where we see God not just forgiving sinners but paying their debt himself. On the cross, Jesus took all of God's just punishment for all of our sin so that you and I now, we get the chance, we can come confidently before him 
not fearing punishment or shame or guilt or the loss of status or approval, we can come confidently before him because Jesus has, what we know is that Jesus has absorbed all of God's just wrath for our sin. And so all that God has left for you is his unwavering, unfaith, his unwavering, his unrelenting covenant love for you. That's all he has left for you. See, church, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the very message of the gospel, is that although we are wicked and rebellious sinners, God is faithful and he will forgive. And we don't have to be afraid to admit our sin. We can come to him trusting that because of what Jesus did, that 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, is what it says is true, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. That confidence, that promise is true. It's unshakable, not because you deserve it. Not because you earned it, not because you are worthy of forgiveness, but because Jesus was. And the work that he completed on your behalf is finished and done. And while God's grace is incredible news, if you just stop there, you're bound endlessly to keep repeating the cycle, though. And that's why the gospel's even better than the story we have here in Nehemiah chapter 9. Because in the gospel, what we actually get is not just God's grace, but we get his power to live new lives. You don't just get his grace, you get his very power to live new lives. We no longer have an external law pushing us towards obedience. We have an internal power compelling us towards it, wooing us towards it. God's very spirit living inside of us. We see in the gospels that the gospel writers make clear that the way that Jesus obeyed is not because he kind of grabbed access to some special God mode inside of him, but because the writers say he was filled with the spirit of God. And the very same spirit of God that filled and empowered Jesus to live a life of obedience unto God is the same spirit that lives in all of those who have put their hope and their trust in him. And so God's spirit shows us who God really is. God's spirit shows us who we really are. And God's spirit reminds us that in spite of who we are, we are dearly loved by God. And his love overcomes all of our sin and rebellion. And so we are motivated to love and obedience, not out of fear or duty or obligation, but out of joy and gratitude. That's the gospel, church. Religion, it says, obey or else. Religion says obey or else you get the punishment. Religion says obey in order that you might get something from God. But the gospel says obey because you have already been given everything you could never earn. You have his grace. You have his love. You didn't earn any of it. You could not merit it and you would absolutely mess it up if you could. But God's grace pursues you in the gospel. And his love overcomes your sin in Jesus. And so it's the good news of the gospel that we remember and celebrate every week when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves of that truth. Reminding ourselves that in spite of all our sin, the great king and creator of the universe, the one who rightly rules and reigns over everything, that he came in love for us, that he sacrificed his own body to be broken, his own blood to be shed, 
so that he might pay the penalty for our sin so that you and I could be forgiven and cleansed and adopted and loved. And so communion does not make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember, to remember God's relentless, unfailing, unmovable grace towards us. And in response to seeing him for who he really is and all that he's done, that we'd be empowered again to live lives of joyful obedience unto him. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, then I want to encourage you, go, whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice or take one of the packs back to your seat, whatever works best for you. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not, if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is, and you're still figuring out what it means to follow him, and if surrendering to him is something you really want to do, and if confessing or admitting your sins to him is something you feel like you even need to do, then I want to encourage you. You are so welcome here, and your questions are welcome here, and your process is welcome here, but I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that joyfully surrenders to him that out of a hopeful confidence comes to receive his grace. So as we sing and as we remember the gospel together in song, I just want to encourage you, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and your tendency is to maximize your sin and to minimize God's grace. Your tendency is to maximize your sin and to minimize God's grace and his mercy. You feel the weight of your sin all the time. It feels like this endless burden that is always overwhelming you. And I want to encourage you this morning. The hope of the gospel, it frees you from that weight. It frees you from that. And I want to invite you to believe again the truth about who who Jesus is and all that he did for you to believe again that Jesus absorbed all of God's just righteous wrath for your sin, that he has no wrath left for you if you put your faith in him and to run to him with your sin so that he might cleanse and renew and restore you and give you new life, that he might carry the burden which you so clearly know you cannot carry. And so some of you, you're here this morning, you maximize your sin and you minimize God's grace and mercy. And I want to call you to, again, remember the gospel. Others of you, though, are here this morning and you tend to minimize your sin. And in minimizing your sin, what you're also doing is minimizing God's grace and mercy. You're making light of it. And I want to call you to an attitude of humble confession. Stop comparing yourselves to other people. That's not the standard. God is. And stop thinking about your sin just as wrong behavior. It is mutinous rebellion. That's what it really is. And be honest with God about it. Don't take his grace for granted. Look again this morning at the cross and remember how much it cost God to be gracious to you. His grace is not free. It's free to receive, but it cost him his own son. 
Allow the reality of that great cost to help you not to make light of your own sin and to minimize it and and blame shift it or to push it off, but to own it. Not out of duty or obligation, but out of joyful thankfulness. Respond to the way that you see Jesus forgiving your sin by taking your own sin seriously, confessing it for what it really is. Some of you are here this morning and you have never confessed your sin to God. Maybe you thought you didn't need to or maybe you thought it was too bad for him to cover. And I hope what you've seen this morning in the passage is that both of those things are lies. Neither of them are true. God is the one true rightful king and creator of the universe and so therefore we are rightly under his just authority but also he has more grace in him than you have sin in you and so that frees us to be honest with him about ourselves and to throw ourselves wholeheartedly onto his grace trusting that his grace will always be enough to catch us let's pray King Jesus, thank you so much that you are a God who forgives. Not just once, but over and over and over again. God, we're grateful like the psalm says that if you were a God who kept records of wrong, no one would stand, but that you are a God who is ready to forgive, who does not hold our sins against us. God, cause us to be a people who see you rightly and therefore see ourselves rightly, who agree with you about what is true about ourselves and you, and who in a joyful, hopeful confidence because of the gospel run to you, confessing our sin and our rebellion so that we might receive the grace and redemption that we need in you. God, we need you for it all. We pray in your name. Amen.